This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 18, The Shock Index. What is it and should you use it? Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma we've got it covered and now here's your host never afraid to bring the jibber jabber it's Shailen Jassani hello and welcome to the veterinary ECC small talk podcast with me Shailen Jassani thanks for joining me once again today in today's episode I'm going to be talking about the shock index what it is and if and how we might use it Today's episode was suggested by Sarah Fritz, so thanks very much for your email, Sarah. Before getting on with the podcast, I'd like to thank those of you who have taken the time to rate and review the podcast in iTunes. The more reviews the podcast gets, the more likely it is that others will discover what is ultimately a free educational resource. So I'm always very grateful to those of you who take the time. I'm not going to read any of the reviews today because there was a few, but thank you to Vibes R and Dr. Rob from Australia, to Mike from the USA and to Elliot from the UK for your five-star ratings and really supportive comments. One of the recurrent themes in many of the review comments that the podcast has received so far is that people do seem to like me discussing the literature and tipping my hat, as it were, to evidence-based medicine insofar as we can actually do that in veterinary practice. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. So the shock index is equal to heart rate divided by systolic arterial blood pressure. And it was first described in the human medicine literature in 1967, as far as I can tell. In healthy human adults, it is meant to range from 0.5 to 0.7. Now, apparently the use of the shock index in human medicine was quite popular in the 1980s and then fell out of favour, but is making a bit of a resurgence in more recent times. Before I discuss it further, I want to just remind you about a few things with respect to shock itself and also help to set some of the context about the parameters that are included in the shock index. So remember that shock essentially refers to the situation where there is a significant reduction in systemic tissue oxygen delivery and undoubtedly the most common mechanism for that is a systemic reduction in tissue blood flow, otherwise known as systemic hypoperfusion. As I mentioned in the last episode, there are different classifications but I think most people refer to four types of hypoperfusion-related shock, namely hypovolemic, distributive, cardiogenic, and obstructive. And remember that in any individual patient, more than one of these types may be present concurrently. So if we focus on the scenario of uncomplicated hypovolemic shock in dogs, then the idea is that when the circulating blood volume falls to a certain level, this fall is detected in the body as no longer being effective and triggers compensatory mechanisms which are driven by the sympathetic nervous system. So the heart rate goes up, the heart beats more strongly, 
and peripheral vasoconstriction occurs, all of which is trying to improve the effectiveness of the circulation and therefore improve oxygen delivery to the more important organs and tissues. Some of these compensatory responses will be detectable clinically when we do our cardiovascular exam and and assess perfusion parameters. And in the context of the shock index, then clearly heart rate is the one that is focused on. It is important to remember that what I've just described refers to what I have called uncomplicated hypovolemia in a dog. And I did this really for three reasons. So the first is that we know that in some patients there are other factors that are going to impact on the changes that may occur and especially on heart rate. So a dog may have some tachycardia due to hypovolemia but the heart rate may also be elevated further due to other factors and of course pain is a major one of these other factors that can drive the heart rate up. On the flip side there may be factors such as hyperkalemia or high vagal tone working to actually dampen the heart rate such that a dog's tachycardia may be less pronounced, or they may even have a heart rate that is within the normal range, but is in fact a a relative bradycardia, when we look at how it compares to the other perfusion parameters that we are finding during our exam. So this is the first point, that in a hypovolemic dog, the heart rate is subject to other influences. The second point I want to make is that I have specifically referred to hypovolemic shock when describing the compensatory response. When hypoperfusion occurs due to the other types of shock, there clearly still will be a compensatory response. But I think it is fair to say that sometimes this response is not quite as predictable because of the different types of pathology and problems that are involved in these other types of shock. I'm not going to elaborate on that any further. Um, And the third point is that you will notice that I've only been referring to dogs. I think it is widely acknowledged that regardless of whether this is due to absolute hypovolemia or other types of shock, the vast majority of cats that we see in, in shock are in a moderate to severe category. But rather than being tachycardic, they tend to be bradycardic, so with a heart rate that might be somewhere around 120 to 160 beats per minute. I have never been able to find a good convincing explanation for why cats do this. But nevertheless, I do think there is clinical consensus that this is what we see. And so this obviously raises questions about the potential use of a shock index in cats, which includes heart rate. And in my searching of the literature, I found two papers that discussed the shock index in dogs, which I'm going to talk about more later in this episode but I did not come across any information relating to cats. As always, if any of you knows anything that I have missed, then of course do please feel uh, free to let me know. So that's some of the discussion about one of the parameters included in the shock index. The other parameter, as I said, is the systolic arterial blood pressure. And what I wanted uh, to remind you about here is that Blood pressure and blood flow or perfusion are not the same thing. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on the physiology of that, but it is important that we remember that when we use blood pressure to try and identify and monitor shock, we are using it as a surrogate or a proxy for perfusion, but it is not the same thing. Changes in blood pressure can occur quite late on in shock, and you can definitely have dogs in which their physical perfusion parameters suggest some degree of hypoperfusion while their systemic blood pressure remains within the normal range. 
So blood pressure can definitely be useful in these patients, but we need to remember that a normal blood pressure does not mean that the patient's perfusion is normal. And we should, in my opinion at least, see blood pressure as an adjunct to our perfusion assessment, something that is supplementary to, but definitely not more important than, or does not replace our physical cardiovascular exam. And then similarly to heart rate, but I would say probably to a lesser extent, we know that factors such as pain may influence blood pressure. Although, as I say, I don't want to over-egg that when it comes to blood pressure in particular. Okay, so with that in mind, with that background and that context in mind, let's now look at the shock index. Remember I said that the shock index is equal to heart rate divided by systolic arterial blood pressure. And essentially, one of the key factors of the discussion around the shock index is can it help us in the earlier detection and or earlier treatment of dogs in shock? And moreover, part of the suggestion is that the shock index may allow clinicians to actually detect occult hypoperfusion. So let's say you assess the patient and neither the heart rate nor the blood pressure are considered abnormal individually, and you don't suspect that the patient has hypoperfusion on the basis of those findings. Well, does combining them as the shock index produce a result that suggests that there actually may be some subtle occult hypoperfusion that you would be missing if you just use one of those parameters on their own? So when I got Sarah's email and I was thinking about the concept of the shock index, some of the questions that came to mind were as follows. So firstly, I wondered, what is a shock index meant to do? How is it meant to help us in our clinical practice? Is it being suggested as something that helps us to improve our management in a way that actually has an impact on the patients in terms of their progression and outcomes? Could it indeed help us with prognostication? The second question was, is it something that can be used for all types of shock across all disorders that might lead to shock? Or do we need to be more granular than that in terms of how we use it? Thirdly, what is the evidence around the clinical use of the shock index? And fourthly, but very importantly, what are the implications of using the shock index? So is it quick and easy to do? Does it require any equipment or additional training or resources? And does it end up costing the pet's carers any extra money for you to use it? So those are some of the considerations that I had when thinking about the shock index. And I'm going to explore some of them, uh, you know, throughout this podcast. Essentially, the suggestion is that the shock index may in particular allow us to detect dogs that are in the early compensatory mild stage of hypovolemic shock. Detecting dogs that are in the late compensatory or early decompensatory stage may not be particularly challenging. But we know that the sooner we can pick up on changes in perfusion that have actually triggered compensatory responses, the sooner we can intervene and hopefully reverse the situation. And of course, we would hope that at least in theory, this would improve the patient-centered outcomes that we are most concerned with. Especially bearing in mind what I said before about potential pitfalls with heart rate changes and with blood pressure, then maybe combining these two parameters into one index allows us to smooth or cancel out some of these pitfalls, allows us to detect early compensation sooner and to intervene sooner. So let's look at some of the human medicine literature, starting with 
what is out there on the use of shock index in human medicine. And I will, of course, include some of the many references in the show notes. If you do a literature search, you will find that there are papers, especially from at least the 1980s, discussing the use of the shock index in clinical human patients. But the other thing that you will notice is that there is a certain degree of granularity. So by which I mean that at least I personally wasn't able to readily identify papers that were talking about the use of the shock index in general terms in shock in people, regardless of the cause. Instead, the papers that I came across were about the use of the shock index in specific scenarios, such as hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock, especially after trauma, but also obstetric patients, acute coronary syndrome, and so on. The shock index has been evaluated to see whether it correlates with higher mortality and injury severity after trauma. It has also been used as a predictor for length of hospital stay, number of ventilator days, and likelihood of ICU admission. It has been evaluated in healthy human adult blood donors, And you also notice that there is acknowledgement of the fact that ideally we need to account for patient-specific circumstances that might actually influence their ability to show the heart rate and or blood pressure responses that I described before. And here I'm actually going beyond the things that I mentioned before and instead referring to factors such as the impact of age, concurrent drug therapies such as calcium channel or beta blockers, diseases that tend to cause hypertension, and so on. And so these sorts of confounding factors essentially raise two questions. Firstly, is there a role for the shock index across all human patients? But secondly, how does it need to be modified for the different patient populations? So do you need a slightly different index or threshold depending on the specific patient population? In other words, Is a one-size-fits-all shock index actually appropriate? Some of the human medicine papers I came across include, for example, a review article entitled Shock Index for Prediction of Critical Bleeding Post-Trauma, a Systematic Review. And this was from Emergency Medicine Australasia in 2014. So the authors write, Early diagnosis of hemorrhagic shock might be difficult because of compensatory mechanisms. Clinical scoring systems aimed at predicting transfusion needs might assist in early identification of patients with hemorrhagic shock. The shock index, defined as heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure, has been proposed as a simple tool to identify patients with hemorrhagic shock. This systematic review discusses the shock index's utility post-trauma in predicting critical bleeding. So their focus was largely on how they could use the shock index to help predict transfusion requirements. And in the conclusions of this study, the authors say that the shock index being simple and repeatable appears to be useful in predicting critical bleeding. Recommendations for the ideal cutoff were varied, with most studies using a cutoff of more than or equal to 0.9. However, the cutoff of more than or equal to one was observed to have higher specificity. Another paper I came across is from Critical Care in 2013, and that one's entitled The Shock Index Revisited, A Fast Guide to Transfusion Requirement, 
a retrospective analysis of 21,853 patients derived from the trauma register DGU. And this is actually the trauma registry of the German Trauma Society. So the aims of this study were to characterize four groups of worsening shock index based upon a large cohort of multiply injured patients, to report transfusion requirements and outcomes within these four groups, and to compare this shock index-based uh, classification in its ability to risk stratify patients according to their need for early blood product transfusion. And so the four groups that they came up in this study were no shock, mild shock, moderate shock, and severe shock. And they used a certain um, category of shock index for each of those classifications. So the no shock group had a shock index of less than 0.6. The mild shock was 0.6 up to less than 1. Moderate shock was 1 up to less than 1.4. And severe shock was more than 1.4. And these authors concluded that the shock index upon ED arrival may be considered a clinical indicator of hypovolemic shock with respect to transfusion requirements, hemostatic resuscitation and mortality. And they actually quite liked their four-group classification system that they had created. So another trauma-related paper is the correlation of shock index and modified shock index with the outcome of adult trauma patients a prospective study of 9,860 patients from the North American Journal of Medical Sciences in 2014. So the authors here say that triage at emergency department is performed to identify those patients who are relatively more serious and require immediate attention and treatment. Despite current methods of triage, trauma continues to be a leading cause of morbidity and mortality, This study was used to evaluate the predictive value of shock index and modified shock index for hospital mortality among adult trauma patients. So what's this modified shock index to which they refer? Well, it's had much less attention as far as I could tell in the human literature. Instead of heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure, the modified shock index is heart rate divided by the mean arterial blood pressure. And the idea behind this is that there is some suggestion that by using the map, you obviously incorporate the diastolic blood pressure and that that might be better. And these authors conclude the present prospective study results show that MSI, so the modified shock index, as a potential marker for predicting the mortality rate is significantly better than heart rate, systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure and shock index alone. Thus, modified shock index emerges as a better and improved predictor for prediction of hospital mortality in adult trauma patients in the emergency room. But look, as I say, this is just one study and the use of the modified shock index has not been widely reported from what I could tell. A lot of the human medicine literature is focused on post-traumatic hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. But there definitely are studies and papers looking at its use in other scenarios. So, for example, there is a paper entitled Utility of the Shock Index in Patients with Sepsis. And that's from the American Journal of Medical Sciences, which has literally just been published in 2015. 
The authors say that they have reviewed and summarized studies that have correlated the shock index with other parameters of disease severity and outcomes in patients with sepsis to determine if it has utility in the management of these patients or the prediction of outcomes. And their conclusion is that the shock index provides an integrated assessment of cardiovascular responses in patients with critical illness. Its predictive value and simplicity are important considerations that should promote its use in the field, emergency departments and ICUs. And the authors offer a flow diagram for how it could be used in patients with possible sepsis. And the last human medicine information that I thought I would mention is actually a poster presentation at the 35th International Symposium on Intensive Care and Emergency Medicine, which is entitled, Is the Shock Index a Universal Predictor in the Emergency Department? A Cohort Study. And so these authors say that the shock index is a widely reported tool to identify acutely ill patients at risk for circulatory collapse in the emergency department. Because old age, diabetes, essential hypertension and beta or calcium channel blockers might reduce the compensatory increase in heart rate and mask blood pressure reductions in shock or pre-shock states, we hypothesize that these factors weaken the association between shock index and mortality, reducing the utility of shock index to identify patients at risk. So this was a cohort study from Odense University Hospital of all first-time visits to the ED between 1995 and 2011. And the end number here was 111,019. So the outcome was 30-day mortality, and the authors concluded that shock index is independently associated with 30-day mortality in a broad population of ED patients. Old age, hypertension, and beta and calcium channel blockers weaken this association, but the association remains prognostic. Shock index greater than or equal to 1 suggests substantial risk of 30-day mortality in all ED patients. So no, I, I just wanted to give you a flavour of some of the human medicine literature about the shock index. There is obviously loads more, um, as well as some animal experimental literature. But what I want to do now is to mention the two papers that I could actually find in the veterinary literature, looking at the shock index in clinical canine patients. And they were both actually from the same issue of the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care in September, October 2013. And I will, of course, include the references in the show notes. And as always, if anyone would like a copy of these individual papers, then do let me know. So the first paper is entitled Evaluation of the Shock Index in Dogs Presenting as Emergencies. And this is by Porter Rosansky Sharp et al. The aims of this prospective study were as follows. So to determine a normal range for shock index in simulated patients, and these were healthy controls that were staff and student dogs. To investigate whether shock index is increased in dogs deemed to be in moderate to severe shock via assessment of plasma lactate, which they defined as a venous lactate of more than 5 millimoles per litre. An exclusion criteria included an inability to obtain systolic blood pressure and the diagnosis of a disease condition that could result in hyperlactatemia in the absence of shock. 
e.g. increased oxygen demand or type B lactic acidosis. And the final aim was to improve, sorry, was to compare the shock index in this shock group to that of healthy dogs and dogs not judged to be in shock on presentation to the emergency room. So we have a simulated healthy group of dogs, dogs presenting as emergencies that were judged to be in moderate to severe shock on the basis of plasma lactate more than 5 millimoles per litre, and dogs presenting as emergencies that were not judged to be in shock. And this last group comprised dogs that were presented as emergencies lacking biochemical evidence of shock, which they defined as a venous lactate of less than or equal to 1.5 millimoles per litre on presentation. One of the things about this study which is clear from the outset is that while one of the suggested benefits of the shock index is that it might help us to detect patients with early compensatory mild shock or even occult hypoperfusion, these authors actually chose to evaluate how it performs in a group of dogs which they classified as having moderate to severe shock or no shock and they did this on the basis of using lactate. And this obviously throws up two questions. So why did they focus on moderate to severe shock, which is not something that is typically challenging to identify? And why did they use a biochemical parameter, lactate, to define this instead of physical examination parameters? I must admit, I was not entirely convinced about the approach that was used in this study. But the authors do recognize that this is potentially open to a critique. And they comment on this. So they say, these data provide a pilot evaluation of shock index in shock patients, but our study did not evaluate shock in occult hypoperfusion, which is an important distinction. In human studies, the proposed use and proven value of the shock index is in identification of early hypovolemia or occult hypoperfusion, as well as in sustained occult shock during resuscitation. This study was designed to introduce the shock index to veterinary medicine. Further studies evaluating dogs with early developing shock are warranted. And then they go on to say, while defining shock solely on a biochemical marker such as lactate is not conventional nor advised in a clinical setting, shock was defined in this manner for several reasons. The first and most relevant is that if selection were based upon heart rate and presence of hypotension, there would be a clear selection for dogs with a high shock index. By instead selecting a biochemical marker consistently linked with shock, this study was attempting to avoid this bias. Importantly, assessment of heart rate and blood pressure are clinically relevant and should be performed in a clinical setting. Secondly, classic objective parameters used to identify shock in a clinical setting vary drastically between breeds and even individuals within a breed. Setting an inclusion criteria for tachycardia, i.e. 160 per minute, may exclude large breed dogs in shock while including small anxious dogs that are not in shock. Clinical evaluation of shock status of an individual dog requires the synthesis of a number of parameters, but for the purpose of population analysis, use of a biochemical marker of increased plasma lactate to define shock allowed for a more objective inclusion criteria. So sorry for reading quite a long paragraph, but I have to say that I'm not entirely convinced by the arguments that the authors present for their methodology. But nevertheless, let's move on and see what else they did. 
So in terms of blood pressure, the authors used oscillometric blood pressure as their preferred technique. If they could not get that to work in an individual patient, then they used the Doppler technique. And in accordance with the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine guidelines for blood pressure measurement, the cuff size was chosen based on the width of the cuff approximating 40% of the circumference of the measured limb, and a series of three blood pressure measurements were taken with the average systolic blood pressure being reported. The shock index was calculated by dividing the heart rate by systolic blood pressure, and no attempt was made to exclude any dog that had an appearance of being particularly nervous or excited. The shock index was classified a priori as a binary, a binary variable, so either more than one or less than or equal to one. And the authors say that a cutoff of one was considered clinically relevant and higher than what is used in people. Although, as you note from my earlier papers, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Um, anyway, it was higher than what is used in people, since dogs generally have a more rapid heart rate than people, despite having similar systolic blood pressure. Thus, a normal dog would be expected to have a higher shock index than a normal person. The sensitivity and specificity, along with area under the receiver oper operator characteristic curve, were calculated to determine the discrimination of the shock index in healthy dogs versus shock dogs, and separately to determine the discrimination of the shock index for emergency dogs that are not in shock versus emergency dogs that are in shock. The area under the ROC curve investigates the predictive ability of shock index to predict a diagnosis of shock. And I must keep reminding you that these authors are defining shock cases as having plasma lactate of more than 5 millimoles per litre. So in terms of the results, the key results from this paper, they had 68 healthy dogs, and these um, had a median shock index of 0.78, with a range of 0.37 to 1.3. They had 19 dogs that were assessed as not being in shock on the basis of a lactate of less than or equal to 1.5. And these not in shock dogs had a median shock index of 0.73, with a range of 0.56 to 1.2. There's quite a lot of similarity with the healthy dogs. And then 18 dogs assessed as being in shock on the basis of a lactate of more than 5.0, and they had a median shock index of 1.37, with a range of 0.87 up to 3.12. It is notable that although there was a statistically significant difference between the shock index for this group and that of the other two groups, the lower end of the range for these shock dogs actually overlaps with the ranges for the healthy and the no-shock group. In terms of more information about the shock group, um, the underlying disease conditions for these patients included pericardial effusion with cardiac tamponade, gastric dilation volvulus, hemoabdomen, and then there was a single case of various other diseases. And the median plasma lactate in the shock group was 7.1, with a range from 5 up to 12.9. So the authors say that sensitivity, specificity and ROC area were calculated using a cutoff of shock index more than one, defined a priori as a clinically relevant cut point. In healthy dogs compared to those dogs in shock, an area under the ROC curve of 0.89, 
with a confidence interval of 0.81 to 0.98 was seen, with a sensitivity of 89% and a specificity of 90%. In the emergency dogs that were not deemed in shock, compared to those that were deemed in shock, an area under the ROC curve of 0.92, with a confidence interval of 0.83 up to 1 was seen, with a sensitivity of 89% and a specificity of 95%. I will remind you that an area under an ROC curve approaching 1 would be considered excellent, and the results here are therefore not too bad at all from a statistical point of view. I will of course include this information in the show notes. So the key conclusions that the authors um, assert are that this study documented that the shock index may be determined in dogs and that the shock index is significantly higher in dogs with shock compared to both healthy dogs and dogs presenting to the emergency room but not deemed to be in shock. Specifically, a shock index of more than one is a highly sensitive and specific indicator to distinguish ER dogs not in shock and healthy dogs from dogs with biochemical evidence of moderate to severe shock. Our findings support that shock index has value as an indicator of shock in sick dogs presenting to the emergency room and may serve as part of an initial evaluation. In addition, the shock index has not previously been evaluated in a veterinary population, so this study serves to introduce the shock index and establish a reference interval for shock index in dogs, which according to their study was 0.37 up to 1.30. I will of course keep reminding you that they did not look at dogs with a lactate between 1.5 and 5, so potentially that category of patient in which the shock index could actually have been of the most value. Okay, and then the second paper I wanted to go through is entitled The Assessment of Shock Index in Healthy Dogs and Dogs in Hemorrhagic Shock. And this paper is by Peterson, Hardy and Hall. And as I mentioned earlier, This is actually from the same JVIC issue as the last paper. So the aims of this study were to establish a normal reference interval for canine shock index and to compare shock index in normal healthy dogs to dogs with known hemorrhage. The hypothesis was that the shock index would differentiate a population of dogs with hemorrhagic shock from healthy controls. So these authors retrospectively analysed data that had previously been collected prospectively for two previous studies that they had done in the past. So the data itself was collected prospectively, but not for this purpose, and then was retrospectively analysed for this study that's being reported here. The blood pressure readings have been obtained by either non-invasive oscillometric or by Doppler technique, The control groups of the healthy dogs consisted of 78 client, student and staff-owned dogs. The hemorrhage group consisted of 38 dogs diagnosed with acute hemorrhagic shock, which had presented to the emergency service. And these dogs had a variety of causes for the hemorrhage. Unsurprisingly, a bleeding intra-abdominal mass was the most common cause. So what they did here was the bleeding dogs were retrospectively classified by three board-certified ECC clinicians into one of four categories of shock. And they did this on the basis of heart rate, blood pressure, 
base excess and comorbidities. As it turns out, all of the dogs in this group were subsequently classified as having at least mild hemorrhagic shock. And so just to remind you that in the other study that I talked about, there they used lactate alone to classify dogs as having moderate to severe shock, and they did not include any mild shock cases. In this second study, they used a combination of physical examination. They did use a blood parameter, but here they used base excess instead of lactate. And they also looked at what comorbidities were present in the patient. So these authors report that there was a statistically significant difference in shock index between the hemorrhage group and the healthy group. So the median shock index in the hemorrhage group was 1.37 with a range of 0.78 up to 4.35, while the median shock index in the healthy group was 0.91 with a range of 0.57 to 1.53. So again, there is overlap in the range between the two groups, which is noteworthy. Given the use of lactate to classify shock in the other study I mentioned, I also wanted to just say that in this second study, they report statistical correlation between shock index and lactate. Now, I would caution against overinterpreting the results of these studies, given the sample size, etc. But these authors in this second study also report that there was no correlation between the shock index and the length of hospital stay in the bleeding dogs. And based on logistical regression analysis, there was not an increased risk of mortality either from death or euthanasia, with increasing shock index in dogs with hemorrhage either. They evaluated the sensitivity and specificity for different shock index cutoffs, and they actually provide quite a bit of information and discussion on this in the paper that I didn't feel that I should get into in this podcast. But most notably was the fact that using a shock index cutoff of 1 which, remember, was that was what was used a priori to define the shock index in a binary fashion in the other study, then using the shock index of 1 actually performed more poorly in this second study than it did in the other study that I referred to. In the second study, the authors also analysed how well heart rate and systolic blood pressure performed independently in differentiating hemorrhagic shock dogs from healthy dogs. And in the conclusions they write, our study does not suggest that shock index is a superior tool to systolic blood pressure or heart rate, but the data support its ability to differentiate between a normal population of dogs from a population of dogs with hemorrhagic shock. Although there is some overlap of shock index between normal dogs and dogs in hemorrhagic shock, the calculation could be used along with clinical assessment as an additional triage tool for emergency clinicians and may prompt further investigation for hemorrhage if the value is above 0.9. So before I finish the episode, I had said earlier on that when thinking about potentially using something like the shock index, we need to consider not only the sorts of things that I've touched on already with respect to the literature, but also what are the practical implications of using the shock index? Is it quick and easy to do? Does it require any equipment or additional training or resources? And does it end up costing the pet's carers any extra money? 
Now, obviously, getting the heart rate is typically quick and easy to do. Remember that it is the heart rate. And if you're going to use the pulse rate, then you have to make sure that the patient does not have significant pulse deficits or perhaps any pulse deficits. Blood pressure, on the other hand, is a little more problematic, I think. I don't know exactly what proportion of all the veterinary clinics in the world have blood pressure measurement devices. And obviously, if you work somewhere that doesn't, then you cannot use a shock index unless you make that investment. Or dare I say your boss does, depending on your position in your clinic. Of course, I would be encouraging you to invest in this blood pressure device, regardless of whether you're going to use the shock index or not. And the shock index is really out there on the periphery of the arguments for why you should invest in and get using a blood pressure device. A number of practices have Doppler-based blood pressure devices, but do not have non-invasive oscillometric. Now, this is not a big deal, actually, because as far as most people are concerned, I think most people are at peace with the assertion that a Doppler device approximates systolic blood pressure in dogs. And obviously, that is what we need for the shock index. You will find a number of papers in the literature looking at how invasive arterial blood pressure correlates with non-invasive oscillometric and with Doppler-based blood pressure in dogs and in cats, both conscious and under anesthesia. And there is some suggestion that there may be differences between dogs and cats. But in truth, as far as I can tell, someone probably needs to do a meta-analysis or a systematic review on all of these papers. But that said, remember that a meta-analysis or systematic review is only ever as good as the studies from which it is derived. So whoever does this needs to start by assessing the quality of the evidence and seeing whether it is actually worth trying to combine in one review. The other thing is that I, I should say is that I find sometimes that people in some practices will use their Doppler blood pressure device in chronic medical conditions, such as chronic kidney disease or hypothyroidism. And potentially they will use them in patients under general anesthesia, but often they do not think to use it in acute emergency cases. So adopting the shock index would require a change in practice for some people, and you could argue that if using the shock index has this effect, then that in itself is a good thing. But of course, I should also stress that it's not just about having a device that measures blood pressure. The whole idea collapses if we don't use that device properly and according to best practice guidelines. If we are going to use blood pressure in general, including in the shock index, then we need to be confident that the readings that we are getting are reliable and believable. Plugging nonsense numbers into the shock index is clearly fundamentally flawed. So if you cannot get reliable, repeatable blood pressure readings that you can actually trend in your individual patient, then don't use this parameter at all. Cost-wise, I think in the early stages when you would be using the shock index, no one would charge extra because you will, or at least you should, be checking the heart rate and blood pressure regularly anyway. Personally, I would be checking the heart rate much more frequently than the blood pressure, but both parameters are checked regularly in the management and monitoring of patients in shock. I do know that some clinics have separate blood pressure fees for checking blood pressure. I think this is just a one-off fee and I don't know whether it is charged in cases like these where it is part of the assessment and stabilisation or actually it's a charge that is reserved for other types of cases. 
As always, I would be interested to hear your experiences and what your clinic does. Could using the shock index actually end up costing your clients more? And if so, then do you think it's worth doing? Okay, so that kind of brings me to the end of this episode. And thanks to Sarah once again for the suggestion. I should say that personally, I've never used the shock index. I think after learning what I have through researching this episode, what I think I'm going to do is I will in the future start to pay attention to the shock index and to working out what it is in individual canine patients and just get a personal anecdotal sense of what I feel about it, so how I think it performs. But of course, we have to remember that if we use the shock index, you don't just do that and then forget about everything else. So you should be seeing it as another tool to enhance your identification, assessment and management of dogs in shock rather than replacing what you currently do. So we use our physical perfusion parameters of which heart rate is just one and assess them together looking at the whole picture. I have to say personally I do attribute a fair amount of importance to how a patient's pulse actually feels when I'm doing my perfusion assessment. I think we can get quite a lot of information from pulse palpation. We also use lactate and blood pressure in addition, and we put all these findings together to assess and manage these patients. And as long as you do that, then I can certainly see using shock index is not going to do any harm and could potentially be helpful. So I am personally interested to see how it performs, and I'm especially interested to tease out how it performs in patients in which pain, for example, is a component of their initial tachycardia. Now, with that said, what we definitely cannot do at the moment, so definitely cannot do at the moment, in my opinion, is to use the shock index in an overt way to predict progression or prognosis. We most definitely do not have anything like the evidence base that we would need to start trying to use the shock index in this way. And to be honest, I'm not sure if we ever will. So as a supplementary assessment and monitoring tool, sure. As anything more than that, then I would say no, at least not in 2015. As always, you can download a transcript of this episode at the website. So just go to veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 18. And there you will also find all the references that informed or were mentioned in this episode. And if you would like a copy of any of those papers, then do get in touch via email at shailenjasani at gmail.com or message me via Twitter at vetemcc or via Facebook at the Veterinary ECC Smalltalk page. And I would also really love to hear any thoughts or comments about this episode. So do you actually use the shock index? And if you have, how do you find it performs? Would you consider using the shock index after listening to this episode? And Sarah, if you're listening, did this episode help to answer the questions that you originally got in touch with? Do you feel that it's provided useful information to help you to understand whether you will or won't use the shock index? I would, of course, love to have your feedback. And lastly, as always, if you haven't already and you can spare some time to rate and review the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher Radio, then I would be very grateful. And I would also love it if you could share the podcast via your social media channels. I post about the podcast one way or another on Facebook and Twitter several times a week. 
And it would be cool if you could share those posts if you happen to see any of them. So it really would be good to reach as many interested people as possible with this free educational resource. So thank you very much for that. And the next episode will be in two weeks' time. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.